Good morning. Happy Sunday, everybody. This is Amy and welcome back to the LBC podcast. Today is our second week in the Emotionally Healthy Spirituality series and the previous episodes are all available on our Facebook page, our website and general podcast platforms. This week we also released the first episode of our conversational series where Joyce and I delve into the world of pastoral care, counselling and emotional health. If you have time this week, and we know you do because you're all at home, you can give that one a listen. If you're listening live this morning, don't forget to stick around at the end for closing worship and of course to say the grace together. So here we go, this is week two of our Emotionally Healthy Spirituality series. Our reading for today is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. That's in the New Testament. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 13. First Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. And it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know now in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope and love. But the greatest of these is love. Most of us recognise this passage because it's often used at weddings, but really it was written for the church. Paul is suggesting that regardless of how gifted and able and spectacular our faith might look on the outside, it's nothing without the right motivation. It must be carried out in and with love. What's interesting is that in all the examples Paul gives of what love is, It's far more defined by characteristics and actions than by feelings. There are only two things that love is. There's a few things that love chooses not to do, 
and a few things that love is not. Paul does not suggest that when we love others, we feel in any particular way, but we do possess particular characteristics and make particular choices. Our ability to love others is therefore not dependent on our feelings towards them. On one hand, that's quite liberating because if I'm honest, I don't feel a deep and overwhelming love for everybody that I meet, and it's quite a relief that I'm not expected to. However, on the other hand, I know that my feelings do influence the way that I approach, engage with, and respond to other people in a very real way. So in order to love them, I must learn to navigate my emotional responses in a way that allows me to bring my authentic self to the relationship and make choices that honour the other. Our emotions are a core part of who we are, and therefore we must learn to encompass them in a way that allows us to both honour them and not be fully directed by them. It's normal for us to have a healthy difference between the way we feel internally and the way we choose to behave externally. An essential part of choosing to love others well means being able to honestly manage the tension between our inner and our outer worlds. Now, if the gap between the two is so vast, then we can be living somewhat falsely. We're presenting too different of a person on the outside than the one who lives within. In that case, we're not bringing our authentic selves to the relationship. Conversely, if we're too emotionally driven, we allow our inner world to pour out at all times, running the risk of detrimental vulnerability for ourselves and potentially overwhelming, damaging or alienating others. We stop them from bringing their authentic selves. So what does a healthy, mature, ability to manage this tension look like. In his book Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, Pete Scazzaro gives an outline of what could be considered emotional adulthood or emotional maturity as it's not necessarily linked to our physical age. Here is his definition of emotional adulthood. I respect and love others without having to change them or becoming judgmental. I value people for who they are, not what they can give me or how they behave. I take responsibility for my own thoughts, feelings, goals and actions. I can state my own beliefs and values to those who disagree with me without becoming adversarial. I'm able to accurately self-assess my limits, strengths and weaknesses. It sounds to me that someone with that level of emotional maturity would be able to, most of the time, choose to love others well. There's an ability to hold space for the other as we find them. That's patience. And there's a value of the other simply as a person in their own right. That's kindness. Taking responsibility for our own thoughts and feelings can help us to be slow to anger. It helps us not to be driven by self-seeking motives. In being able to assess our limits, strengths and weaknesses, we're able to set good boundaries and only take on things that we have the capacity to fulfil. We can be careful about how and when we express our feelings. 
we can choose how and when we resolve conflict. And in choosing how and when we serve others, we prevent building up resentment that leads us towards holding grudges. Choosing to love others well means taking ownership of our emotional lives. Having ownership of our emotional lives gives us a greater capacity and consistency in loving others well. Taking hold of our emotional lives means we need to be aware of what's going on in our inner world so that we can reflect on it, learn from it, process it, and bring it into our relationships in a mature and beneficial way. As we mentioned last week, Paul on more than one occasion talks about this need for us to grow in our spiritual lives from infants to adults. Here he gives us another illustration of that necessary growth. He says, when I was a child, I talked like a child, thought like a child, reasoned like a child. Paul's no doubt talking about our spiritual selves and the maturity that comes with the knowledge of Christ. But consider it in a more literal dimension for a moment. Think of yourself when you were a child. How did you talk? How did you think? And how did you reason? We have an idea of what emotional adulthood might look like. But what about emotional childhood? Remember, it's not correlated to our age, but our emotional development. Here's Pete Scazzaro's definition for those of us who may be operating as emotional children. When life is going my way, I'm content. However, as soon as disappointment comes or stress enters the picture, I quickly unravel inside. I take things personally and I interpret disagreements or criticism as personal offence. When I don't get my way, I often complain, throw an emotional tantrum, Withdraw, manipulate, drag my feet, become sarcastic, or take revenge. I often end up living off the spirituality of other people because I'm overloaded or distracted. Now, I'm absolutely sure that most of us recognize some of that in ourselves. We all have moments where we are not as mature as we'd like to be. Our growth is not linear, and particular circumstances or experience will provoke the appearance of our inner child more strongly than others. But the sign of emotional immaturity is living from this place as a default rather than on occasion. When we consider this picture of emotional childhood or immaturity, it seems that it would be much more difficult for us to choose to love others in a biblical way. Things revolve around ourselves. We're so dependent on others to behave the way we want them to. We can't hold space for the experience, emotion or disappointment of others. The truth is, unless we take time to really think about what we're doing or how our life experiences have drawn us towards maturity, most of us will simply love the way we were taught to love. As we know, our spiritual life is tied to our emotional life. And our emotional life is formed, not entirely, but primarily, by our early experiences. And so we can't ignore the impact of one on the other. In order for us to knowingly and maturely obey God, we need to acknowledge and own the ways that we're prone to behaving. We need to take responsibility for the choices that we're prone to making. 
and work on the reactions that we are prone to having as a result of the ways that we were taught to love. This means taking an honest look at our family of origin, our childhood home, our significant relationships and experiences, and recognising both the strengths and weaknesses of what they taught us. We don't do this to blame, shame, or expose our families, but rather we recognise the fallen nature of every generation. We seek to learn from their mistakes rather than repeat them. Pete Scazzaro says that this is the Christian life. God's intention is that we grow up into mature men and women transformed by the indwelling presence of Christ. We honour our parents, culture and histories, but we obey God. Children typically behave in response to what their environment and their experience is modelling for them. When you were a child, what was being modelled for you by the significant adults in your life? What lessons were you picking up from the environment in your home? What was your experience of love and relationships? What we learned was not always the explicit intention, but the implicit internalisation of what we perceived. Here's an example. Teacher and author Jessica Leahy carried out some research among families where children were offered cash incentives to pass their exams. Many parents do this, offering a gift of a higher amount for a higher grade to motivate their children to study. When she interviewed the parents, they all believed that their children knew that they were unconditionally loved regardless of their grades. But when she spoke to the children, 80 to 90% of the children believed that their parents would love them more if they got higher grades and love them less if they failed. The parents' explicit motivation was to encourage their kids to study. But the implicit message the children received was that they were more loved if they achieved well. It wasn't the parents' intention but that was the children's perception. This happens in all areas of family life. What our parents think they were teaching us was not always what we learned. Here's an example. Let's take your family's approach to conflict. Every family handles conflict differently. It comes down to personality and the dynamic of all the relationships in the room. Now, when you think back about conflict in your house, you probably think about how often you heard people argue. You think maybe how loudly they argued and remember the atmosphere there was when there was a dispute between your parents or your siblings. The outward part of our family's behaviour is only part of what we saw and learned. The absence of loud and dynamic arguments does not mean the absence of conflict. The presence of loud emotional expression and arguments doesn't mean that there was unhealthy conflict. Let's say you had a parent whose identity was deeply tied to their pride in being right and to being successful. This might mean that they were unable to handle being challenged when they were wrong or made a mistake. So if they hurt your feelings, and you pointed this out, they may have shut down, dismissed you, and refused to engage with you until the subject changed. Their external lesson was, 
I don't have to listen to you. We're not talking about this. What you might have learned from this is that your feelings don't matter. You may have learned that affection, emotional engagement and love are only an offer when you do not challenge somebody else's behaviour. In later life, if you're still carrying this lesson with you, it might present now as a need to please others so that they like you. It might show up as a fear of expressing your feelings and challenging other people's behaviour when they hurt you. You're worried that they will withdraw from the relationship if you point out their failure. This can lead to the building up of deep harboured resentment as your pain is unacknowledged or overlooked. You might think you have a healthy relationship because you don't have big fights and you don't argue, but the steady building up of unresolved hurts is actually poisoning your relationship slowly over time. You might consider it love not to speak up or challenge the other, but in fact you're keeping record of wrongs because each wrong is not addressed or resolved. In order to have a kind of mature love that keeps no record of wrongs, you may need to learn to speak up, to voice your feelings and your experience, in order to repair the relationship in a loving way. Of course, it's important to note that the reparation of a relationship involves both people being willing to do the work. You are only responsible for your part in the process and you are choosing to love others well if you show up to do that work. You are not responsible for the other person's participation. Now, on the other hand, you might come from a family who do loud conflict. They blow up with big expressions of their feelings and exchange heated words. In your family, the relationships might be robust enough to handle this because everybody operates the same way. You all say what you need to say, you get everything out of your system and quickly return to life as normal with your relationships still intact. Within your family, that's a healthy way for you to work out your conflict. However, if you behave this way in conflict with others outside your family, in a group setting, a business meeting, or with someone where your relationship just doesn't have the same foundation, your behaviour could cause them significant distress and it could damage the relationship beyond immediate repair. You may have a healthy, reasonable sense of the importance of getting things out and clearing the air. That's good. Hold on to that. But you may need to develop a more patient approach that takes into consideration the relationship with and experience of others in order to choose to love them well. Whether we realise it or not, we bring all these different lessons into our adult lives, not just about conflict, but the lessons we've taken in about money, power, success. There's so many areas where our, our family have influenced and taught us things we may not even be aware that we think. We bring these things into our marriage, our parenting, our leadership, our service, and even our church business meetings. We hold these unconscious lessons that we've absorbed. And we must have the courage to trace them back to their roots in order to replant them and produce better fruit. 
Of course, we're not only shaped by our family of origin. Over time, we're shaped by significant relationships and experiences. Every time we face loss, tragedy, success, love, divorce, change or transition, we develop new strengths, new fears and new responses from each one. Part of taking ownership of our emotional lives means that we must initially just be curious enough to wonder why we are the way we are. There are a couple of reasons that people resist this kind of curiosity. Perhaps they find it a narcissistic and self-involved endeavour. Of course, that's a real danger of self-reflection, that we become so absorbed in working out ourselves, we forget the other. But as we've already covered, we need to know ourselves so that we can choose how we love others and allow God to transform the parts of us that need to change. Many people are afraid of this curiosity because they're afraid of what they'll discover about themselves or their families. They're afraid it might potentially change our memory or relationships with the people we love. That's a very genuine concern. And it's why any work involving particularly deep family wounds might best be guided by a pastor or counsellor to help us sift through the changing nature of those relationships. For Christians, there may also be a fear that in exploring the flawed and broken parts of ourselves, we expose them to God and that once he sees us, he could not possibly love us as we are. But the good news is that God is the safest person for us to unpack our baggage in front of. Pete Scazzaro tells us that the gospel says, You are more sinful and flawed than you have ever dared believe, yet you are more accepted in love than you ever dared hope, because Jesus lived and died in your place. Let me say that again. The gospel says you are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe. Yet you are more accepted and loved than you ever dared hope, because Jesus lived and died in your place. As I was reading through our scripture from 1 Corinthians, this verse kept sticking in my mind, the very last verse in there, before the one that we all know so well. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection, as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. We see and know God so dimly, only in part, like seeing him in a dirty mirror. What we see in ourselves is a beautiful yet dim and dirty reflection of the glory of God. But God knows us completely and fully. Paul says that one day we'll know God the way he knows us. God knows us. We can hide from the parts of ourselves that we don't like, but God already knows them. Psalm 139 can be very comforting and yet very disturbing when we read it, depending on how we feel about ourselves. It tells us that wherever we go, God knows our every thought, our every move, 
and every second of our lives. If you're quite comfortable with God being there through every moment, that can be a great joy. But if we take that literally, we know that God sees the parts of us that we try to hide because he's there for every thought and every move and every moment. We can hide from ourselves, but not from God. And so since God already knows, we must learn to trust him with what we find. God has the power to redeem and restore the ashes of our past and trade them for the beauty of a better future. We are not bound by the baggage of our past. We must simply be willing to unpack it in the presence of God and with the help of his church, submit it to his purposes. Looking to our past can be hard because there are wounds that we quite rightly are so afraid to attend to. They are raw and they are painful. We may recognise the sin and brokenness of our parents from generation to generation and we see what sin and brokenness has been passed on to us. But let me tell you this. No matter what you find, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Nothing you reveal or discover will separate you from the love of God. There is no condemnation. Romans 8 tells us that in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither life nor death, nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We can bring him our baggage, unpack it in his presence, and submit it to his purposes with trust and confidence, because we are fully known. There's a lot in there to unpack. Given the circumstances we find ourselves in, this is a time for gentle reflection. We don't need to pull all the skeletons out of the family closet today. But to guide us on the journey towards curiosity, here are a few questions to get us started. Number one, what patterns have emerged in the way that your family shaped who you are today? Number two, what explicit and implicit lessons might you have learned from your family about love, identity, money, relationships, and faith? Question three. How do these compare to the ways in which we're called to love one another? And question four. What might you need to begin to move away from and move towards to fulfill your calling? as a disciple of Jesus. That is all from me today, friends. I hope you've found this helpful. During the week, we'll continue our conversation series podcast, and we would like to invite you to ask questions if there's anything that you would like us to discuss. This week, we'll be looking at some of what it means for us to listen to our emotions and listen to that inner child who always has something to teach us. If you have questions about 
today's message or anything else that's been discussed so far, you can send your questions to podcast at lesliebaptistchurch.org.uk. That's podcast at lesliebaptistchurch.org.uk. As always, have a good week, stay home and stay safe.